Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is geoeconomics. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or for those who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, I'm joined by Zoom by IPI Research Fellow Daniel Ogden, and today we're going to talk about geoeconomics. So, Dan, geoeconomics kind of um, seems to encapsulate a lot of the things that that you actually uh, specialize in and study. So why don't you explain to our audience what the concept of geoeconomics is? Well, thanks, Tom, and thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. Well, I think we're all familiar with the term geopolitics. Uh, that's become very much of a, of a common terminology and discussion today. Well, geoeconomics is is very similar. And to put it simply, it, it is the pursuit of, of states of power interests by economic means. And so when we think of geopolitics, uh, maybe we think of diplomacy, and we think of military movements, maybe we think of, for example, China in the this uh, hubbub with Taiwan over uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit, going over there and you know, flexing its power militarily. And some people say it actually was preparation, you know, kind of a dry run for what an invasion would look like. So we think about geopolitics, you know, we think about things like what Taiwan's military or China's military exercises vis-a-vis Taiwan the last several days. Well, when you think about geoeconomics, uh, let's talk about China again, just to kind of introduce the concept. We hear a lot about what's called the Belt and Road Initiative in China. And that's where China is basically using uh, investments, foreign investments, uh, loans, uh, and trade with different countries around the world, particularly uh, kind of trying to replicate the old Chinese Silk Road, which was the overland trade route that Marco Polo uh, used when he visited with China and was built for trade. And of course, it's not just China that does this, um, but basically what you have in geoeconomics is, is states using nation states using their economic uh, policies, what are called tools of economic statecraft to try to advance their overall national interests. And this isn't a this isn't something that's new. For example, uh, the British Empire has did this for centuries. When you think of the East India Tea Company, even though that was a private company in Great Britain, it certainly was aligned with British interests and in India. Uh, but what's changed today, I think, is there's a couple of things that have changed that make geoeconomics even more of a uh, phenomenon in international relations. And that is, I think, two things. First of all, we've had a globalization of economic globalization, manufacturing, production. And so we had a previous podcast, we talked about global supply chain and how companies now uh, quite often uh, will, even though the, the Manufacture even a product manufactured in the United States will have suppliers from many different countries, and of course, overseas, that's the case as well. And so that's one thing that's to, different today than it was 50, 100, 200 years ago. But the second is the 
international economic integration of economies. Uh, for example, China is the largest holder of U.S. debt. Now, you know, a lot of people say, well, China could go ahead and use that against the U.S., but of course, they, they, the last thing China would ever want to happen is the U.S. to default on those treasury bonds because then China would be left holding the bag. But the point is, is that not only in financial terms, but also just in trade. Uh, and so the world today economically is, is much more linked, both in terms of businesses, operations, as well as national economies. And so this gives states a greater opportunity to use economic policies and economic statecraft to advance their, their interest in other countries. So, Dan, uh, economic uh, interdependence, of course, is a well-known concept, and the idea is that countries that are that are economically interdependent, you know, who trade with each other, uh, tend to have good relations, and they tend to not go to war. And you know, I think the, for 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 much of U.S. history, the policy for the U.S. has been something like countries that trade together don't go to war together. So we've seen trade as beneficial, not just from an economic standpoint, but also from a political standpoint. But, you know, you mentioned the uh, the British East, East India Company, which was more than just interdependence. The, the British East India Company was something more along the lines of um, economic imperialism. Uh, and what we see China doing today with the Belt and Road Initiative is more than just interdependence. It seems very much like an attempt to gain economic domination over the over the country's that it's working with, uh, they become huge debtors to China, and so China wins either way. Uh, e- either either they are able to service their debt to China, or they're not able to service their debt to China, which puts China in an even stronger position where they're able to seize assets, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, what's the difference between just sort of normal globalization and economic interdependence, and what China is doing with the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, first of all, let me just quickly pivot back to your comment about trade. Um, there's a lot of controversy. We, we hear this thing that countries trade them, don't go to war. But in my view, actually, it tends to be the opposite. When countries are allies, quite often, that's what leads to increased trade. And certainly, there have been countries, uh, I think we may have discussed this on earlier podcasts, right before World War I, uh, Europe, uh, these all these different European countries, states, empires were trading with each other, but that didn't stop them from going to war. Um, so I, I think that's a I think that's a misnomer. I think a lot of it is countries trade with other countries in which they have alliance, and there certainly is a is a is an interdependence you could say between trade and alliances. But in regards to what's your your main question, what's different? Um, well, if we look at uh, purely from a the, the way economists would look at this versus a political scientist. Economists looks at international economics. Economics is all about uh, the division of scarce resources. And so you look at uh, countries that trade with each other uh, and, you know, you, you basically uh, really have that focus. But when you look at it from a political perspective or what I would call a geostrategic perspective, what we actually see is there's more to it than just private enterprises trading with each other around the world or even private enterprises trading with state-owned enterprises, which is often the case with China or or U.S. companies manufacturing in China. Uh, 
what we actually see is that states are using economic policy and what I call these, what are called the tools of economic statecraft to actually advance their interests. So take, for example, the Belt and Road, BRI, Belt and Road Initiative of China. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. They, they, they uh, put a lot of these countries in the debt, and then if they don't pay, they'll get concessions. But it's more than that. Uh, for example, China right now is basically running the Panama Canal. And the fact that you have Chinese companies there, and this can apply to other countries as well, particularly the China the Chinese firms there, a lot of them are owned by the state, standalone enterprises. A lot of them have actually the PLA, People's Liberation Army, owns them. The fact that they're there gives them really a significant strategic advantage from a military perspective. So China has this thing called military civil fusion. And, you know, President Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex. You know, that term in the United States, okay, you know, perhaps a mild version of China has a very serious military industrial complex because they have a stated policy military civil fusion. So when they engage in economic relations with other countries, it's not just to help China economically. And it's not just some uh, some uh, altruistic, you know, as they would say, well, we're helping try to develop some of these countries in Africa, et cetera. There is a clear strategic military uh, angle in, in the pursuit of these relationships that that is more than just purely Let's do business together. So there's an intentionality from a strategic perspective, without question. So it's more than just development aid. It's actually strategic and military. That's right. Now, now you know, critics of U.S. foreign policy would, would make have made that argument as well in the past, you know, that like United Fruit Company in the Central America, anything is nature. So it's, it's not that China's the only country has ever done this. And certainly the United States uses tools of economic statecraft. Tariffs, for example, under President Trump, and they've been largely maintained under President Biden, they certainly have been used against China to try to counter not only China's economic uh, 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 means, uh, you know, China's economic policy, but also foreign policy. We have export controls, we have sanctions. And so it's not that China is the only country in the world that uses uh, geoeconomics and economic statecraft to advance its interests. And so I think the really the question we have to ask is, well, are those interests really in the different countries are advancing? Are, are they are they helpful to the world in general? Are they helpful to these particular countries? Obviously, the United States is using economic statecraft right now against Russia and the invasion of Ukraine sanctions. But I think that's for a, a, a you know, a, arguably a positive cause. So it's like anything else. You know, you, you have these tools that governments use and it's not necessarily the use of these tools that's where we look at it, good or bad, but what's the purpose of them? And certainly from the U.S. perspective, we say that the purpose of what China is doing is to gain a strategic advantage in the world. So you point out that uh, that the U.S. does this as well, and I think specifically a foreign aid, right? So. I yeah. think I think part of the justification for foreign aid, a, a lot of conservatives historically have have been all worked up into a lather over foreign aid, but it turns out to be just a, a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall federal budget. But the justification for foreign aid was always that to one degree or another, it's buying you friends and it's buying you allies, even if it's just a matter of them voting with you at the United Nations or something like that. Uh, but there have 
there have been um, unofficial strings tied to foreign aid, but not really strings tied to foreign aid. Uh, what you're describing uh, with China is something that is far beyond foreign aid. It's actually China as a state investor in a lot of these countries with the strategic purpose of having political influence. Uh, we, we see in some countries where suddenly China has a deal for constructing ports and things like that. Yeah, that's you know? right. Or in, a, in other countries, you know, China is suddenly finds themselves in charge of the rail infrastructure or the communications infrastructure. And as you pointed out in the Panama Canal, somehow China's running the Panama Canal. So this is much more strategic and purposeful than simply throwing foreign aid at a country and just hoping that they will look kindly upon us when we need them, isn't it? Yeah, no, there's no question about it. Um, yes, U.S. has used foreign aid, as all countries do, to advance their interests. Um, but I, you know, with, with people can have different views of what China's real goals are, but I think what China is trying to do is create a level of dependency of these other countries on China so that when they do default uh, or when they acquire uh, assets through investments that China is able to actually control what these countries do uh, versus a lot of foreign aids. I mean, some U.S. foreign aid, yes, it's been given with the hope these countries be friendly towards the United States, but quite often it it doesn't necessarily come with strings attached. And, and that's that actually is a problem in many cases because foreign aid doesn't actually get down to the people it's intended to benefit. It goes perhaps in the pockets of corrupt uh, foreign uh, politicians in that country. But the point is, I think foreign aid is, is in general, is much more of a benign purpose, you know, things like World Bank loans. And of course, the US, United States is the largest shareholder of the World Bank and also contributed to the IMF, has used these institutions to try to provide economic assistance. But what China is doing is much more tied to its military position. And again, this whole notion that in China has, again, come out and said, we have a policy of military civil fusion. This is not only occurring internally within China, but also in terms of China's foreign relations. So when you talk about the concept of geoeconomics, uh, if we picture this like as a Venn diagram, uh, the concept includes both like the U.S. foreign aid practice that we've discussed but it also includes this much more strategic, much more purposeful, much more, shall we say, nefarious uh, types of actions by China. Uh, both, both the nefarious and the naive applications here are all included within the idea of geoeconomics, right? That's correct. And, and there's another dimension to it as well. Um, the United States, uh, and, and this is where a country's uh, national security policies may kind of bump up against their trade policy. And, and a good example is the United States in relation to India. Uh, the United States has basically this partnership called the Quad, stands for Quadrilateral Alliance between, or it's really more of a partnership, not alliance between the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. Now, Japan and Australia have been U.S. allies, actually, for many years. I, I would say India right now is a partner in this, uh, they certainly have, and right now are having border conflicts with China. So the U.S., from a strategic security perspective, ha is has India's involved in this partnership to uh, kind of uh, try to 
somewhat to thwart China and its outreach and its military power. But when it comes to trade policy between economic trade relations, U.S. and India, there are issues involved there uh, having to do with protectionism in India and the greater ability of U.S. firms to export to India, et cetera. And so you've got trade issues involved with India where there's conflicts, and yet on the security side, there's this partnership. And so geoeconomics also involves kind of the threading of the needle, uh, particularly when when countries and their relationships perhaps have security interests, but not economic interests or shared, or it could be the opposite. There could be a shared economic interest, but perhaps not so much in the security area. So uh, there's, there's really a lot of dimensions to it. But the bottom line is when, when you take economics and you put it into this geopolitical mix, so to speak, it really does tend to make things quite often very complicated in trying to understand international relations. And so you really have to kind of break it down in constituent parts and look at individual aspects and, and then uh, try try to uh, – one of the things international relations is difficult is that it has so many different dimensions to it. And that's what makes it tough. But that's what geoeconomics is really about. It's trying to figure out how countries' economic policies relate to their overall strategic interests. So, for instance, the decision of, say, like a country like Brazil to heavily subsidize its sugar industry – or the decision by India, as you said, as you mentioned, to have protectionist policies about what can come in or not, or the decision by like a country like Vietnam to heavily subsidize their textile industry. All of these decisions are all part of geoeconomics of countries trying to to uh, introduce economic policies that help them achieve their strategic interests of one sort or another. That's right. It's and it's not just related to with China. It's very much tied to their military, uh, their uh, foreign policy from military perspective. But it's not just tied to that. It's also a country trying to improve its economic standing. Now, of course, from a purely free trade perspective, uh, you know, economists will say, well, protectionism is not really advance your economic interests. Actually, it's harmful. And there's a lot of disagreement about that. I think from a purely theoretical perspective, that's true. But from a more from an economic realist perspective, quite often uh, countries are used tariffs, uh, maybe in what's called infant industry to develop their industries so they compete internationally. One of the problems with that is once they grow up, they keep those protections controls there. So it's, it's geoeconomics isn't just about uh, advancing your military security uh, in, uh, strategic interests. This also has to do with your economic standing. Also has to do with with the uh, your economic uh, standing as a component of what's called national power, and so that also plays into it as well. A country, you know, China has actually done this, as I mentioned in uh, the article I wrote for IPI a couple months ago. China actually used its participation now in the WTO to build up its economy, and that is in turn strengthen its military. So it goes in both directions, so to speak. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know, trade policy and that sort of thing as part of geoeconomics. I mean, it strikes me that free trade, one can hold up free trade as an ideal uh, to, toward which we aspire, but also to be a sort of a uh, geopolitical realist and an economic realist and understand that you know countries that are – 
at active war with each other probably don't trade with each other and countries that are yeah. that are that have strained international relationships probably are going to restrict trade as well for instance you know if if the united states views china as an adversary or a potential adversary there are going to be export controls on what sorts of technology that we will allow exactly. us companies to export to china and there will be active attempts to try to prevent China from gaining certain technologies, whether that's cutting off their students or cutting off their professors from positions with U.S. universities and U.S. tech companies and things like that. Yeah, that, all, that that's right. That goes into the mix. Um, what, quite often we think of protectionism as uh, on the import side, you know, tariffs and non-tariff barriers and to nature but also one could argue on the export side, although generally export controls aren't viewed as protections per se, it's certainly uh, quite often maybe they're viewed more from what's termed mercantilism, uh, which that term gets thrown a lot around too. And it's, it's quite often as fuzzy meanings, means things to different people. But basically, whether it's you know import tariffs, whether it's export controls, what a country is trying to do is to advance their overall position, whether it's military position, whether it's their economic position in relation to other states. And so these are tools, these are policies that countries use. You know, uh, the WTO obviously was set up, at least on the, doesn't get involved in export controls, by the way. It's purely on import type of restrictions to try to create, you know, an international free trade system. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that theory always bumps up against reality. And so what it, it's like that in so many different areas of life, what works well in theory doesn't necessarily work well in the real world. Uh, and, and so when, when you have a country that is a adversary, that does give you pause to think, well, how much should we be trading with them? What type of stuff should we rely upon them for our supply chain for certain materials? Do we want to be exporting? our technology to them, it certainly gives pause to those considerations. You know, this whole conversation uh, in context has to do, I think, with this idea of a an economy, a, a, an economy that has superior productivity and superior innovation compared to an economy that does not. And of course, in that, in that equation, I'm describing the United States as the economy with a superior innovation, <laughs> the superior technology, and China sort of being in a copycat position. Uh, but it strikes me that ultimately what trumps all of this stuff is the idea of innovation. Uh, you you want to be in a position where, the, where you're the, the United States and you're telling the Cray supercomputer company that you're not allowed to sell supercomputers to China. You don't want to be in a situation where China has actually outpaced us in the innovation of things like quantum computing or something like that. And I think one of the real geopolitical concerns that we have in the United States right now is to what degree is China transforming from an economy that essentially relies on um, spying, <laughs> uh, hacking to gain U.S. technology, space technology, military technology, to an economy where they're actually out innovating us and they're actually gaining superiority in things like quantum computing and things like that. This whole equation, this whole this whole discussion takes a completely different cast if suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where an adversary is out innovating us and we're behind. 
Yeah, yeah there's no question about that. And, and I think that, that has been the case of China. They have uh, made tremendous technological advances, both both civilian and military. If you look at their new fighter jet, it's almost a straight ripoff of the of the F-35. Um, well, they also just, think- they also just recently launched a space plane that looks exactly like uh, the U.S. Air Force's space plane. You know, it it, it it's kind of it kind of boggles the imagination that they would have started from scratch to come up with something that looks exactly like ours. Yeah, there's no question about it. And so I think you know, is China now to the point where they can out innovate the United States from purely their own capabilities? It's certainly. You know, um, with their uh, emphasis upon STEM, I'm sure, in the universities and their secondary education, I think they've got the intellectual capital. But I think there's another aspect about innovation that they uh, for the environment they don't have, and that's just freedom. And so you have companies are being told by the government, and this is where we get in this whole discussion of industrial policy, where, you know, the Traditionally, in the United States, basically, the free market approach is companies are going to innovate when they see a need in the market for, for that innovation. And they'll innovate also for competitive reasons. But where you have the government saying, well, this is what you need to do. OK, if the government guesses right, and certainly when it comes to supercomputing, quantum computing, I, I think this is obviously an area where it's extremely very important for a country's competitive position, both economically, technologically, militarily. So when the PRC government has Chinese uh, enterprises innovate, you know, direct in that regard, well, then they're they're making a good guess, so to speak. But yet the, the environment for innovation, I think the dynamic environment we have in the United States, I think our university system still is far superior uh, to, to the Chinese system. And, and I think Yes, they are starting to become a country that can innovate. The question is, can they sustain it? And that's what that's what I really wonder. And that's why they continue to engage in industrial espionage in the United States. Uh, you know, I know in the university environment, I used to be Baylor's director of trade compliance a couple of years ago. We didn't have any issues here, but I know other universities had issues of many issues of Chinese grad students and even others visiting professors based engaged in espionage. So they continue to want to do that. And I think that's an indication that they realize still the United States, at least from a theoretical research and innovative, innovative uh, innovation perspective, is still ahead of them. Well, I love that you brought up the the freedom and the liberty angle, because I think you're right about that. I mean, are, you know, we look at China and we 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 tremble because we're afraid they're going to somehow out, out innovate us and and surpass us. But they still are trying to direct everything from the top down, and they are still right. subject to Hayek's information conceit. Right, that that bureaucrats at the top of the pyramid can see the future, that they can have enough information, that they can direct things from the top down. Whereas the genius of America has always been the the liberty to innovate from the bottom up. And, you know, we've been caught asleep at the switch a few times. We were caught asleep at the switch uh, with Pearl Harbor, uh, but we were able to innovate and we were able to up our game and we were able to outproduce uh, the Japanese and, and eventually prevail. We were caught asleep at the switch with Sputnik, with the Russian satellite, the Russian space program. But in both of those cases, you know, a free economy full of free people was able to out-innovate and outperform a, a top-down system. 
And so as long as it may be that as long as we are able to preserve our liberty and our free market system, uh, we, we don't have that much to fear from a competitor that insists on running everything from the top down and limiting limiting uh, entrepreneurship and liber- limiting the freedom of their innovators and their students and their business community. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And so, you know, th- then if you say, well, what, what should our policy be towards China, well, obviously, or any other country, we, we do want to protect our technology. But at the same time, um, you know, we, we at the same time, we have this kind of countervailing force that we want our U.S. companies to be able to successfully compete overseas. So it is interesting. Uh, you know, one of the courses I teach at Baylor is global trade compliance and the Department of Commerce, particularly for what are called dual use controls. These are controls, export controls, items that can have either commercial or military use. They tend to be the, the regulations. It is amazing. Right, we talk about government regulations overbearing, but actually the regulations tend to be very granular in nature, because what they're they're not trying to keep all U.S. businesses from exporting stuff, just exporting items that have certain very uh, specific characteristics, and this is what makes uh, export controls compliance difficult because. You have a particular item, and it's not just, well, you can't export item item anywhere. Now, to countries like Iran and North Korea, yes, you can't. But for everywhere around the world, you have all these different um, filters, so to speak, to go through as to whether you can export this to which country, to what characteristics of the item. But that's because what the, what the government's trying to do is trying to stop the most sensitive technology from getting into the wrong hands overseas yet at the same time provide the greatest ability for American companies, American companies to compete. And so that's, it's, that's a very difficult job. Uh, and, and that's, it's like many other things with governmental policies quite often you have two different conflicting interests involved in trying to figure out how to make those two things kind of work together. Our system is certainly not perfect. I'm aware of an anecdote where an entrepreneur designed a, an extremely high tech material that could be used to make boats and ships uh, sort of stealthy in the same way that that we have found a way to make airplanes stealthy. Uh, And the federal government would not allow him to sell that technology to other countries. But on the other hand, the Defense Department also refused to buy it. (laughs) So it's like you can't sell it. You can't sell it to other people, but we won't buy it from you either. So I mean, our system is not perfect. But again, to return to this idea of liberty, uh, it's still going to be better. Our bottom-up system of, of of innovation and entrepreneurship, while not perfect, is still going to be better than a top-down, government-driven system such as we see in China. So, Dan, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. thanks a lot. And for our listeners, you can find out a lot more about trade, innovation, entrepreneurship, and technology at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.